in Luke chapter 19, uh, taking a break from, uh, from Peter, 1 Peter, for obvious reasons, as today is Palm Sunday. Um, and so uh, there's probably no better time than to explore the scriptures of this triumphal entry. And I have had a fascinating time this week, uh, given, you know, obviously dealing with the loss, but the time that I spent in the Lord's Word um, studying scriptures as to this week of passion. And more specifically for this morning, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so as we've said, today is Palm Sunday. And on this day, Jesus, we all, by way of Christian tradition, enter into what is called Holy Week or Passion Week. And the reason is called Passion Week is because of what we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where we read, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Of course, this is out of the ESV, which is what I preach out of. But in the authorized version or the King James Version, the word used here for suffering is passion. And it derives from the Greek word that describes Jesus' suffering. And therefore, we call this period of time the Passion Week, as we observe His suffering prior to His death on the cross. And there were many events Maybe someday down the road we can have a service every single day up until Easter, walking as Jesus walked, learning about the ministries, learning about what Jesus was saying and how it was received because there's richness in all of that. But now we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He's celebrated. He's cheered. And shouts of joy of Hosanna, which means save, I pray which is significant in understanding the dichotomy of this text. Now, your Bibles may have this portion of Scripture as titled Triumphal Entry, and rightfully so, because, but when we look deeper into this text and we understand its context, we will see that those who praised Him did so with a different reason and purpose than what Christ was presenting because those in the crowd were seeing Jesus through the lens of this world and not through the lens of the Christ. So let's start with verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went ahead going to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' triumphal entry is on the backdrop of Jesus visiting Zacchaeus in Jericho. We all know the story of Zacchaeus, the short little tax collector who crawled up in a tree so we can get a view. And Jesus said, climb down from there, Zacchaeus, for tonight I dine with you. And as a result, Zacchaeus came to the Lord and returned many fold back that which he took. Because, you know, tax collectors back then, in order to make a living, they would always collect a little bit more than what the Roman government called them to do. And they were despised and they were hated. And that's why Jesus was questioned as to why he hung around with harlots and tax collectors. 
Now, we know that Jericho is about 12 miles away from Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem. Now, only in the Gospel of Luke do we see the parable of the Minas prior to the text on the triumphal entry. And I don't want to spend too much time on the parable itself, because that in and of itself is an excellent sermon. But suffice it to say that Jesus, by way of the parable, and you can read this when you go home, is revealing to his followers that the earthly kingdom they desire is not coming on this day. But as we see in verse 11 of this same chapter, Luke points out that it wasn't going to come immediately. And as with all parables that Jesus tells, they need to be spiritually discerned. In John 12, 16, we read, Disciples did not understand these things, but at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered all that Jesus said. And so Jesus is speaking of a parable of the minus as to how his kingdom will come. They've seen it in the present that it was here now. And so he warned them in that parable that it's not now, that much has to take place before that kingdom comes, and that there's accountability when he does come. So it's a good study. I would encourage you to look at that. Now, This triumphal entry into Jerusalem will be Jesus' last. Will be Jesus' last. Within the gospel of Jesus, visited, Jesus visited Jerusalem several times, with John's gospel documenting the most. In fact, John identifies five times that Jesus visited Jerusalem. In Luke's, it identified three times in which Jesus visited Jerusalem. Now, some would say one needs to take the end of account when Jesus was tempted by Satan and placed on the temple, which is in Jerusalem, as a time of visitation that Jesus had. However, I think that goes beyond what the text is actually saying, and it's more imagery than a physical visitation. But it was very practical to think that Jesus, being a Jewish male, would have visited Jerusalem at least three times a year for the Passover, Yom Kippur, and Sukkah. Now, Passover, of course, is a celebration of the Jews released from Egypt in captivity. Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day within the Judaic calendar, which occurs in the fall, for the expiate of their sins, which is the atonement of their sins, and that achieving of reconciliation with God. In fact, that ram's horn is called a shofar, and that they would announce it with the playing of the shofar for Yom Kippur. And then there's Sukkah. Is a week-long Jewish holiday that comes five days after Yom Kippur. It's celebrating the gathering of harvest. And so one could expect that Jesus visited Jerusalem for each and every one of these observances. And so even though the scriptures tell us that Jesus visited so many times, 
There's an expectation that Jesus frequently visited Jerusalem. And so in verse 29 we read, And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, which is called the Olivet. As Jesus draws closer to Jerusalem, he comes upon two villages, Bethpage or Bethphage or Bethphage is how it's pronounced in the Greek, and Bethany. Now Bethphage or Bethphage, as we say in the English, lied east of Jerusalem, along with Bethpage. Now, we don't know the exact location of Bethphage. It's been lost to history. Some speculate where it's at. It's fairly close to Bethany. But we do know where Bethany is. And Bethany is on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, which used to be controlled by the Muslims until 1967, in which it now is now part of the West Bank and controlled by Israel. Now, some would say that there's quite a distance between Bethany and Bethpage and also Jerusalem. However, the map up there is kind of disorientating. You can see the mile marker there. Bethany was within a Sabbath day's journey of Jerusalem, which means the allowable distance one could travel during the Passover or the Sabbath. And so it was about a mile and a mile and a half. Now, on that map, it shows that Bethphage... Best estimation is located somewhat distant to Bethany. However, when we look at that as a map, we need to understand we really don't know where Bethphage is, and they could have been close together. And so when we look at the order as it relates to Luke and the other Gospels, one shouldn't put too much time in understanding, well, did he go to Bethany first, then Bethpage, or Bethpage, and then Bethany? Because the roads that we understand to be in existence are more modern versus the roads that was actually traveled during Christ's time. And so we shouldn't put too much into that. But now Bethany, and we don't know too much about Bethphage, but Bethany, we do. And Bethany is significant for many reasons. First, Bethany, if you recall, is the home of Mary and Martha. And no doubt when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for these pilgrimage and these festivals, he stayed in Bethany. In fact, in Mark's gospel account of the triumphal entry, after Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, he went to the temple and then immediately returned to Bethany to stay. And so we can expect that he traveled back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem and stayed with those whom we loved, which is Mary and Martha, and of course their brother, Lazarus. In fact, it was also where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Not long before Christ's triumphal entry, as written in John's account. Now, we don't know the time frame of Lazarus' raising from the dead to the triumphal entry as Jesus then traveled to Ephraim because they plotted to kill Jesus, and so he needed to escape to a town in the wilderness where Ephraim was. And then, of course, he went on to Jericho where he met Zacchaeus. And from Jericho, he went back to Bethany. Now, some people will say it's probably within a month or less than a month in which this occurred, Lazarus' resurrection from the dead, and when Jesus' triumphal entry entered into Jerusalem. 
It was also here where Jesus was anointed with oil by Mary of Bethany six days prior to the Passover. When answering the disciples' objection for utilizing a very costly oil that could have been used for the poor. Of course, that was Judas who was saying that. The purse keeper, the thief, the betrayer. He revealed to them that it was part of his preparation for his burial. We find that in Matthew 26, 12. And so when we look at Bethany, we see, in fact, there's Lazarus' tomb. I found that interesting when I was cruising around the Internet trying to get my bearing as to where all these places are and the significance of them. I was surprised to see that they have signs up saying, hey, Lazarus' tomb, right? And what's in interesting is when you, when you look at that, and you see Lazarus's tomb, people are walking by it like, yeah, Lazarus' tomb. Yeah. There's not like this big, huge you know, build-up, right? Okay, we're hundreds of yards from Lazarus. Yeah. No, it's like, where are you going? Get a cup of coffee. Lazarus' tomb. And they just keep walking. But you can still see it today. They do believe that that is the place. But when we look at Bethany, Bethany is in a higher elevation than Jerusalem. First, Jesus had to ascend from Jericho. He had to climb up to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany, which is on the east side. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem, but through the benefits of YouTube, you can walk the path that Jesus walked, or the best recollection in modern times. And it's amazing when you come upon the top of the Mount of Olives, and Jerusalem, more specifically, the temple wall, comes into view. Now understand that Jesus was walking this in the morning. And so as he come up the Mount of Olives, you can see the early morning sun being shown upon Jerusalem and the walls. It must have been a huge sight. But I can't help but think what Jesus was thinking in his heart. This is my final time. They don't know why I'm coming, but they soon will. Now, what is even more significant about Bethany and the Mount of Olives is not only is it the location of the descending of the Messiah, but it will be here where he wages war against Israel's enemies, as foretold by Zechariah 14, 14, and Revelations 19, 11 through 16. In fact, when he comes, he will land upon the Mount of Olives and split it in two and then make war against the enemies of Israel. He will have the world come against Israel, and he will defeat them there. And there's far more that we can discover about the Mount of Olives and Bethany, but it's too much to cover, so let's continue on with verses 29 and 30, where he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, and where entering you will find a colt tied which no one has ever sat. Now, Scripture does not tell us as to whom the disciples were that were chosen to go and, uh, and fetch this colt. Some speculate it was Peter and John who were also entrusted with the preparation of the Passover, so it would seem natural and logical that Jesus would have selected them as well. Additionally, from Matthew's account, the village is probably Bethphage, where this colt was tied. 
since they departed Bethany in the early mornings of the Sabbath or before the Sabbath, which is on a Saturday. Now, what is significant here is Luke states, on which no one has ever sat. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew reveals a donkey and a colt, whereas the others, Matthew, Mark, Luke, talk about, or Luke and Mark talk about just the donkey, or they omit the donkey, I'm sorry. This would indicate that the young colt that had been tied has yet to be broken, has yet to be ridden, as it was still with its mother. But what we need to take away and what we need to understand is that this unridden colt signified the sanctity of the animal and its sacred use. In ancient biblical times, a donkey of a king or a horse of a king is not to be ridden by anyone else but the king. So the donkey's colt was set apart by God for the purpose of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem to signify Christ's royalty as king. Now, there are some interesting things when we look at the donkey and colts in Scripture. If you've ever done a word study of that, it's quite fascinating. I'll share you some of the highlights that I learned. First, we see in Matthew's account in chapter 21, he quotes and reveals the fulfillment of the prophecy as we know in Zechariah from Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is just one of many prophecies concerning Christ. According to Mike Bradfield and his apologetic book, which is a really good book, by the way, Confidence in Christ, he identifies 353 prophecies involving Christ that he fulfilled. 353. Not one. Not fulfilled. From his birth to his ascension, The accuracy of fulfilling 353 prophecies is mathematically improbable. And yet he did. They were all fulfilled. That's what gives us great confidence in our faith as to who he said he is, what he does, and who he is. And this prophecy as quoted by Matthew revealed that Jesus claimed his rightful place as the Messiah as only Christ could. Secondly, the colt reveals his humility. Jesus didn't ride a conquering horse like kings did when they entered in, conquesting or celebrating a conquest. He didn't ride a chariot that was decorated with gold and precious stones and artwork from their conquests. But he rode a colt, a simple colt that expresses humility his poverty, and his meekness. In fact, during the time of the kings, they had a certain eminent domain, if you will. In fact, if you recall in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we see Samuel warning the Israelites that, hey, if you want a king, this is what you're going to get. And he starts to list all of the things that were going to be oppressive under their kingship. 
versus staying under the judges, which Samuel was the last. And specifically, what's interesting in that study is in verse 16. He says this, He will take your male servants and your female servants, this is the king, because it's his right, because you aligned yourself under his kingship, and the beast of your young women and your donkeys, and put them to his word. And so in commanding this donkey and her colt was within Christ's royal right. However, in Mark, we read that Jesus also told the disciples who obtained the colt that they would immediately bring it back. Now, isn't that interesting? To me, this reinforces what Jesus said. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And so although Christ had the need, He did not take it for Himself, but He returned it to its rightful owners. Additionally, the code is spoken of in Jacob's blessing to his son, Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 through 12, Jacob's sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And within Jacob's blessing of Judah, he says this, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. That's interesting. Obviously, Jesus is the choice vine. We find that to be the case in John chapter 15. And he's also called the Lion of Judah in Revelation, where he returns as a conquering king. Now, even if those are not significant enough, there's one more that we need to look at. And it's found in 1 Samuel. And within chapter 25 of Samuel, we see Abigail, the wife of Nabal, who's called the fool, who rebuked David's men, resulting in David.